0: welcome to Spies of London with Paul Detman. As you know now this is the new format of the show with a couple of factoids sprinkled liberally around the main piece which is 12 to 15 minutes of slightly detailed but not too serious look at Cold War history followed by a shortened book review section towards the end. If you like the book reviews we are going to be putting a timestamp on these episodes so that you can jump straight to the book review and indeed the main section. Today's first factoid Hidden just off the ring road southeast of Moscow at Yasenevo lies a house known as Ten Ash Trees. It is reached by a single-lane bumpy track and was where for 20 years the KGB held court, entertaining spies from all over the Iron Curtain and USSR allies to grand dinners before escorting them upstairs to one of the comfortable suites with the hidden microphones and concealed cameras. Today, Ten Ash Trees is a hollow shell. A monument to another age. Well, so says James Adams in 1993. Ten Ash Trees sounds like a great name for a spy film. So this week I've managed to tie in the main part of the episode with the book review. The book will be The New Spies by James Adams, published in the early 90s but written over the few years after the Berlin Wall came down and the USSR collapsed. So this is a crafty way for me to spend more time talking about Russia, which I think is important because they are close to Europe uh, because of what's happening in Belarus and Navalny and the Russian elections happening this autumn as well. It seems like a really great time to be looking at Russia in more detail. And one thing that James Adams' book made me realize is that I'd allowed the SVR to slip off my radar. A lot of recent footage and coverage of Russia around the Skripals and so on has focused on the GRU, who were believed to have carried out the Novichok attack in Britain, or the FSB who were mentioned a lot domestically in Russia and believed to be having a role in suppressing democracy and so on. Now that's very much a Western viewpoint of course, you would expect that from me, but the SVR is mentioned a lot by James Adams and has not really been mentioned very much in the news that I can think of. Well my Russian's not up to the point where I can explain in Russian what the letters SVR stand for. The SVR took over the responsibilities of the first chief directorate of the KGB in December 1991. So the KGB, that name, that those letters are still used in places like Belarus, but not in Russia. Essentially, the KGB was such a large, pervasive organisation with huge power that in the early 90s it was split up. And it was split up into the FSB, which is the Federal Security Service of Russia, which looks after domestic security, and the SVR, which looks after foreign Security it's called the Foreign Intelligence Service. So very loosely, you can compare the FSB to MI5 and the SVR to MI6 very loosely. I say that because the GRU is much bigger and more powerful than the SVR, and that's a military-based intelligence unit. In fact, apparently, the GRU has six times as many spies overseas as the SVR as of 1997. So the SVR is an anti-terrorist cooperation and intelligence-sharing organization which at the time this book was written was very much facing West, looking for cooperation. You had issues in Chechnya and other places of the former USSR. And the SVR wanted help. They wanted to share information. They opened their doors to James Adams and others to try and give off the view. Business as usual had changed. This is not just the KGB under another name and the closing of ten ash trees, of course, was part of that. But clearly, a dismantling of an organisation as large and powerful as the USSR, and indeed the KGB itself, was going to take years. And I think this is where the optimism of James Adams was misplaced, because it was not until January 1996 that a new law on foreign intelligence organs was passed by the Duma in Russia, which loosely allowed the SVR to carry out the following activities. Uh, Intelligence gathering, active measures to ensure Russia's security, conducting military, strategic, economic, scientific, and technological espionage, protecting employees of Russian institutions overseas and their families, more on that later, providing personal security for Russian government officials and their families, conducting joint operations with foreign security services, and conducting electronic surveillance. So let's go straight back to that thing about protecting employees, overseas. Every single agency that I know about has this contradiction in in the middle of them. So the SVR is an overseas agency. So you'd expect it to be doing pretty much everything outside of Russia in terms of intelligence gathering, but it's not. We already know that because of the GRU. Is it really within the remit of such an organisation to protect Russian employees? Well, that would include diplomatic staff, at embassies, of course, but generally intelligence gathering of the sort MI5 does is not bodyguard work, which is in the UK covered by the Metropolitan Police's close protection specialists. So protecting individuals is not the same as collecting intelligence. Different people, different skills. Conducting electronic surveillance in the UK is done by GCHQ. Again, in the 90s when this was established, computers and computer networks and the internet were not widely used by members of the public and they were not seen as part of the infrastructure of a country that could be compromised, at least not by the masses and certainly not by the politicians. So having an organisation which does intelligence gathering and espionage, close protection and electronic surveillance just seems ridiculously broad and still having time to conduct joint operations and conducting military espionage, which really should have been the GRU on its own. Goodness knows what active measures includes. So you'll see that even in the establishment of the SVR's legal framework, there are massive questions to be asked, even at the most basic level. Some of these issues have been addressed in America and the West. So you have a different organisation like GCHQ in America. You have the CIA, which is supposed to be focused overseas, but are they? But then in America, the FBI are much more of a crime-fighting unit with police powers powers of arrest and uh, interrogation and so on. So each country, each culture has evolved its own way of doing things. There is little question that the USSR must, and the KGB must have looked towards the West for ideas, even if they ignored some of them. And perhaps because of our success at Bletchley Park in the second world war, electronic surveillance, code breaking, has always been seen as a brain activity, a kind of perhaps a white collar activity, distinct from anything that MI5 or MI6 would try to do. So the SVR has problems in 1996 from its initial beginnings, and then of course I refer to the optimism of James Adams, the fact that the Cold War was over, the fact that the only people who didn't think that were the kind of cynical skeptics who were just pessimistic about everything in life. This optimism changed radically as Putin came to power in the late 90s and beyond and gradually began to dismantle some of this western facing, in fact perhaps some would say all of this Western-facing agenda. So in Russia, certainly, it's impossible to separate the economic situation, perestroika, glasnost. They were always used together, but they are different. This westernized capitalist model from the secret service, the police, the law enforcement, and the mind control aspects of the KGB, the informant network, was particularly feared. These things all go in together, and it's impossible to separate them. It's futile to try and do that. And of course, when Putin came to power, a former KGB top brass, he began to take this down back towards its USSR past, but not the whole distance. So I am not one to say that the KGB of today, the FSB, the SVR, is anything like on the scale that it had in the USSR, because Russia is smaller than it was then, of course, I think that the tactics and strategy of those organisations, as it is in 2020, is much closer to the KGB than it would have been in 1995-96. I think there was a window of five years where they were genuinely looking west, they were genuinely becoming internationalist, genuinely looking for change, which immediately stopped when Putin became Was it president or prime minister? He keeps changing his name, but he's still there as the top guy in Russia anyway. The opportunity was there for the West. I think we did try to seize it. We did try to encourage and coach and even cajole the Russian security services to be more open and more transparent and more westernized. That ultimately failed. If anything, Skripal and Navalny have shown us with the use of Novichok agents that their approach is getting more sinister at the moment rather than less sinister. These episodes are always supposed to be a cue a for you listeners who want to explore in more detail. So not giving you all the answers and not spending hours talking about the details, but just giving you enough information to learn a little bit, give you some opportunities and ideas for future investigation, but without getting bogged down in the detail. But I can tell you that our friend Wikipedia has a really nice section on the command structure of the SVR and all the different directorates that were within it. It's a long list. It takes up pretty much a full screen on my prompter here. There's the OT directorate for operational and technical support. The I directorate for computer service, which analyzes intelligence data. So some of this in the 90s was very forward-looking. Perhaps it was too ambitious. I think it's too broad. I think the SVR should have been split up, as should the FSB. I think they're both too broad. I think MI5's too broad as well. History has shown that an agency which tries to do too much can fail to do anything well, but that's certainly a personal view. Perhaps the fact that the SVR is never on the news is a sign of success because it's only when you stuff up that you get on the news. So the two GRU gentlemen who had a holiday in Salisbury fooled nobody, in fact pretty much convinced the West that the GRU did try to kill the Skripals. They're purpose in doing that interview was of course to prove the opposite. So the fact that the SVR never hits the news or at least not the mainstream news is perhaps one sign of success. One thing the research for this episode has shown me is that the SVR is very well worth research. It's worth coming back to in a future episode and it does pay to get better acquainted with what they are trying to do because they are the closest to MI6 and the CIA of all of the Russian agencies. Therefore, given that MI6 and CIA are the two that hit the news and hit the James Bond films so often and in fiction, that perhaps the SVR should be better known than it is. So I will be looking in more detail in a future episode at the SVR. So I've just got time for the final factoid before taking a closer look at the book. For those people who thought that the Cold War ended when the USSR collapsed in the early 90s, have a look at Aldrich Ames, who was charged in February 1994 with providing highly classified information from 1985 to the Soviet Union and Russia. It is believed that the information he passed led to the execution of nine US agents in Russia. In April of 1994, he and his wife pleaded guilty to espionage and tax evasion, and he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. So although that spy started in 1985, he was active through the fall of the USSR and the Berlin Wall, and there's a list here on Wikipedia of other spies who were arrested during the 1990s. And in 2001, Robert Philip Hansen was arrested for spying for the Soviet Union for more than 15 years out of 27 that he served with the FBI. So the Cold War never ended. Okay, so it's now time to hand over to Paul for the review of The New Spies by James Adams. Thanks, Paul. So this book by James Adams, this is the paperback edition of James Adams from 1994, but Adams himself claims that it takes him about three years to write a book. So it was certainly being evolved and researched as the wall was coming down and Gorbachev was being replaced by Yeltsin. And that feels, these names to me, feel like a different universe almost. Okay, so I was only a teenager back in the early 90s, but everybody felt like the fall of the wall in particular, the dismantling of the USSR so soon after it, meant that the Cold War was over. I think that that is the assumption that everybody made who was outside of this world. The book starts with a look at 10 ash trees, which I've mentioned in the early factoid there, a red brick mansion that was used to entertain spies from behind the Iron Curtain. And after the Iron Curtain collapsed, it was opened up to people like James Adams, Western journalists and intelligence agents to come and talk and see how things had changed, to see that this kind of complex, which was built in 1972 by a Finnish architect and dominated by a 22-storey main building, was being dismantled. But even here, months after the fall of the USSR, Adams claims that the buildings of ten ash trees had an air of decay. The guardhouse, a single wooden structure, looks like a relic from Stalag Luft. And he says this in chapter one. How times have changed. Five years ago, the KGB had an army of 300,000 men, kept files on millions of Soviet citizens, and had absolute power to enforce one of the most ruthless tyrannies ever seen. 300,000 staff. That dwarfs anything that Britain ever had. I'm pretty sure it dwarfs anything Britain combined with America ever had. It was genuinely a secret police force, which had informers in every avenue, every corner of the USSR. Somebody claimed that there was no part of the world that had never been visited by somebody from the KGB, and I think that's probably true, to an extent, at least in the places that they were interested in anyway. So in this time period, a very short time period, uh former head of the CIA were going to Ten Ash Trees and Russia and talking to the people in Moscow. One of the directors of the SIS, the MI6, were going, flying to Hungary, flying to East Germany, Russia, trying to lobby, I suppose, the former KGB to become more open, more transparent, more westernised. But such a history of cultural spying and snooping was never going to disappear within five minutes. And as I've just said there about the SVR, It was the mid-90s that the legal framework was still being agreed. And by 1999, when Putin came along, I think he reversed pretty much everything that he could as quickly as he could. So James Adams feels privileged in sitting in Moscow with the head of the former KGB. And I think he was. I cannot imagine that conversation happening today. Adams felt thrilled and privileged to be allowed into the former KGB offices and to talk to people and to get the lay of the land. It seems to me he was one of the optimists. So by page six, he admits that there were believers and sceptics. The latter, the sceptics, argued that the Russian bear was very much alive and a military coup or even a takeover orchestrated by the former KGB could see the communists revert to type. Today, so by 1994, the sceptics have either left or been forced to revise their thinking as the reforms of proved to last longer than expected so I think some people expected the reforms to last literally five minutes but three or four years after the coup, the reforms were still ongoing and going in the right direction as the believers would see it. But now he says, although the sceptics, the real hardliners have left, the community has divided between the true believers and the cynics who claim that much of the old intelligence structure remains. Now, it has to be said from 2020's perspective, the cynics were correct. There is absolutely no question about that. And perhaps some of the sceptics have returned. The group of cynics says that the KGB may have changed its name and its missions, but will remain active against Western interest for the foreseeable future, particularly in the former Soviet republics, and immediately Belarus springs to mind. I bought this book as an optimist. I was very excited by the possibilities of a united Germany. We had grown up in the 80s with the risk and the threat of nuclear war. There were government information films. There were air raid tests on a regular basis. We were conditioned to believe that life on earth could be stopped within seconds at any moment. And although I didn't particularly buy that because this idea of mutual assured destruction was meant to act as a deterrent and I think the Cuban Missile Crisis as long ago as the 60s shows that it did act as a deterrent. People even in Russia, were so terrified of the possibilities of nuclear war that even the Russians, even the USSR, did not stoop so low. And of course, famously, only the West has ever detonated a nuclear bomb in anger in Japan. So we were growing up through the 80s with this fear of electricity being turned off every five minutes... Coal strikes and shortages, nuclear war. There are no doubt that the parents of that time were more terrified than the kids. But for that to be switched off virtually overnight with the fall of the wall and the collapse of the USSR seemed like a massive Story, a massive event, certainly as big as coronavirus or the financial crash or any kind of hurricane or tsunami might be. It was a massive, massive thing. And for James Adams, a professional journalist, to write this book, hit the ground at the right time, the majority of people were optimists. I've already said in a previous episode that John le Carré and some experts were never ever of the mind that the threat was finished from Russia. It was just regrouping and evolving and they've been shown to be correct. I feel that James Adams was an optimist back in the early 90s. Perhaps because he went there firsthand and spoke to these people and realised they were just humans like everybody else. He wanted to believe that they had changed their approach. And they did try, I believe, that until 1999, Russia was very much. Desperately trying to modernize and join the international community, if you like. But times change, attitudes change, people change, and I'm certain now that the FSB, GRU, if not the SVR, have taken many, many steps back towards their KGB past. I'm not saying that this is good or bad. I try to be objective. Clearly, I don't agree with the Skripal and Navalny assassination attempts, and I think that Russia should not pretend to be democratic. I think if you're going to have elections, they should be free and fair. It's their right to not hold elections, but if they hold elections, they should be fair ones. And that goes for America as well as Russia. Democracy, as we all know, is a terrible idea, but it's the least terrible idea that anybody's ever come up with for running a country. And you should try everything you possibly can to be objective, unbiased, and allow the elections and the votes to be counted properly. Clearly, that's not what is happening in the East right now. There's been tensions in Ukraine, Crimea, Belarus now. We are a long way from Russia re-establishing the USSR, but we are a lot closer to that than we were in 1994. So I think James Adams is an excellent read. I really enjoyed it when I read it in the nineties. I was on the side of the optimists then. I was only a teenager. I am now on the side of the cynics and the skeptics who can see what is happening with chemical weapons, assassination attempts, political kidnappings, interrogation, fear-mongering, targeting people's families and friends and colleagues to try and silence them. This is a very dark time for many people in many parts of the world. And this is where it becomes harder to stay detached because I think if you're talking about specific spies like Gordon Lonsdale back in the 50s, it's easy after 50 or 60 years to treat them in a somewhat academic fashion. But when something's going on right now with Navalny still in hospital, the Russian elections taking place, Belarus in a big state, Lebanon in a big mess, that becomes harder to detach and it really tests your commitment to objectivity and all the rest of it. I think you'll see from this that I am fighting that on a daily basis. I I think if you've got somebody being a dictator pretending to be a Democrat, that is bad news for the people of their country and for everybody else in the world as well. Okay, so the book reviewed. So the book we reviewed in this episode was The New Spies, Exploring the Frontiers of Espionage by James Adams, published by Hutchinson in London. Thank you for listening. The best way you can help us if you enjoyed today's episode is to leave a review on whichever podcast directory or app you use. Doesn't matter. Reviews are good. Five-star reviews are very much welcomed, but even one-star reviews allow us to learn from our mistakes. Thank you for listening to Spies of London. Spies of London will return.